The following message was recorded at Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. For more information and resources from Shades Valley, please visit us at shadesvalley.org. Saved alone. Saved alone. When I say those two words, I don't know if that brings anything to mind for you, but for a man named Horatio Spafford, those words meant life and death. If you don't know the story of Horatio, he was a Christian. He was a successful lawyer. He lived in Chicago in the late 1800s. He lived there with his wife, Anna, and their five children, and life was good. Until one day in 1871, tragedy struck. Horatio's four-year-old son died. Shortly after that, Uh, The Great Chicago Fire happened, if you're familiar with Chicago's history. And Horatio had a lot of his money invested in real estate, and so the fire nearly bankrupted him overnight. Two years later, by 1873, Horatio had gotten back on his feet enough that he decided his family needed a break. They needed some time to get away on a vacation. And so he and Anna planned to take their four daughters to England. But when the day arrived for them to set sail... Horatio had some business matters that came up, and so he needed to stay behind. Still, he sent Anna and the girls ahead of him on the SS Villa du Havre. And on November 22nd of 1873, that ship was struck by another iron sailing vessel. It sank. 226 people died. Annie was 11, Margaret Lee was 9, Bessie was 5, and Tanetta was 2. And they all died. Horatia's wife, Anna, survived. And upon reaching land, she sent a telegram to her husband. And it began, saved, alone. What do we do with a story like that? Like, when we hear a story like that, all sorts of emotions begin to just well up inside of our our hearts. There's pain. There's hurt, there's anger, there's frustration, there's confusion, there's, there's doubt, especially if we call ourselves Christians because we end up asking ourselves things like, where's God in the midst of that? Like, if he's, if he's sovereign, if he's in control, like we believe he is, then, then why didn't he do something? Horatio and Anna Spafford, they loved Jesus, but where was Jesus on November 22nd, 1873? Like, we all... We've all felt this. We've all asked this because we all have our own November 22nds in our lives, don't we? Times when, when suffering just invades and we're left reeling. It's, it's, it's like jumping into an ice-cold lake. No matter how much you prepare for it, no matter how much you, you brace yourself, the plunge is still going to take your breath away. And we all 
in our lives. We have, we are, or we will find ourselves pushed into the ice-cold lake of suffering. And yes, it's true. No matter how much we try to prepare or brace ourselves, it's still going to take our breath away. But, as your pastor, I, I want I want us to be a people who when we are pushed into the ice cold lake of suffering and we can barely breathe and our faith itself feels like it's suffocating, I want us to know which way is up, which way to swim for air. This word aims to prepare us for suffering. It doesn't deny it as a reality in our life. It aims to prepare us by providing us with with the truth we need to know which way is up. Which way to go for, for air so our faith doesn't suffocate and drown beneath the waters of suffering. John chapter 11, where we are this morning, it prepares us to suffer by providing us with these truths that we need. It provides us with truths about the One who is our Savior in our suffering. And the one who is the Savior over our suffering. We need these truths. In this text, the, the followers of Jesus, the disciples of Jesus that we're going to see here in this text, they need these truths. If you've been with us as we journeyed throughout this gospel, we're at a turning point right now in the gospel of John. We are turning towards the cross. In this text... Jesus is going to head back down towards Jerusalem where everybody already wants to kill him. And in pretty short order, he's going to end up crucified just outside the city. In fact, it, it will be this miracle that he does right here in John 11. It will be this miracle that convinces the religious leaders they must put Jesus to death. We're, we're at a point where we are turning towards the cross. Jesus knows that. What truths could possibly prepare his disciples for that kind of suffering? What, what could possibly sustain their faith and keep it from drowning and suffocating in the ice-cold waters of the, of the cross? They need these truths. We need these truths. So let's see them together. I want us to walk through this passage and see four truths about the One who is our Savior in our suffering. And then after we've walked through it, I want us to step back and see four truths about the One who is our Savior over our suffering. Let's go in first. Start reading together in verse 1. Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. Look at verse 3. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one whom you love is sick. It's the first time in this gospel that we meet this small family of two sisters and a brother, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And we meet them under difficult circumstances. Lazarus is sick. And the sisters are sending word to Jesus. He knows this family. He loves this family. As a matter of fact, these two sisters, they don't even say, hey, Lazarus is sick. They say, the one you love. Jesus, the one you love. They, they don't even actually ask Jesus to come to them. There's an assumption that out of his love, he will. Isn't, isn't that what you do when somebody you love is sick? He loves 
Lazarus, what else could love possibly look like other than rushing to be by his side? Verse 4. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, lest we think that makes Jesus sound heartless, John, who's writing this, he's aware of how that can sound, so he, he goes on, he comments for us. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Therefore, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Jesus highlights three things for us. Control, glory, love. Jesus looks at this situation. He says, I'm in control of this. This illness, it does not lead to death. It doesn't ultimately end in death. I'm sovereignly in control over the outcome of this illness. And the outcome isn't death. He says the outcome is glory. This illness is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. I'm in control, working for my glory, and what I'm doing, I'm doing it out of love for these people. That's, that's what verse 5 says. It says that He loved these people, therefore He waits. Now I know that in some of your translations it says yet, or now, or so, all of those are weak translations trying to soften what's going on in the Greek. The word is un, and it only means one thing. Therefore. It's, it's because Jesus loves this family that He stays where He is. It's, it's because of His love that He lets Lazarus die. work Jesus says that he's in control but to Mary and Martha this has to look like chaos not control Jesus says that this is for his glory but to Mary and Martha they are staring down the gore of death this can't look like glory Jesus says his actions are motivated by love but if we are honest this looks like inaction out of laziness, not, not love. How can Jesus say He's in control, working for the glory of God because He loves these people? He can say it because of the first two truths we must see in our suffering. Number one, in our suffering, our perspective is limited. In our suffering, our perspective is limited. Number two, in our suffering, our Savior's perspective is eternal. These two things are being pressed up against one another right here as we get the perspective of the sisters and we get the perspective of Christ. In all of our suffering, our perspective is limited. Our Savior's perspective is, is eternal. When my daughter, Karis, was three years old, uh, she was playing and her elbow, her right elbow became uh, disconnected, disjointed. It's the most pain I have ever seen her in to this day. And I remember sitting in the ER at Children's Hospital with her, holding her. She wept. She did not want anyone to touch her arm, especially the doctor. Her mind, doctor, touch, pain, bad. 
And yet, I held her there tightly, not allowing her to resist the doctor. I held her there tightly through her pain, through her tears, through her screams as the doctor popped her arm and her, her, her joint back into to place. I held her there knowing it was going to hurt and cause her pain. Why? Because I love her. And my perspective was different than hers. I had a perspective that she couldn't possibly understand. Her world was just the immediate pain of her elbow. Much like Mary and Martha right here in John 11, they're caught up in a world of of pain from their limited perspective. They can't see anything else. Yet Jesus' perspective is eternal. This illness will not end in death. This can only be seen from his perspective. He is in control. He says, this is for God's glory. And I love you enough, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, I love you enough not to give you a lesser glory. I love you enough not to come and not to heal at this moment because you are going to see and behold my glory in a way you cannot see any other way. And this is the greatest thing that I can give you. I won't give you a a lesser glory. The most loving thing that Jesus can give any of us is Himself in all of His glory. That's more loving than giving us health. That's more loving than giving us wealth. It's more loving than giving us our loved ones or children or marriage or even our own lives. All those things may be glorious and awesome, but they are temporarily glorious. They all fade. They all end. And the only reason they have any glory at all is because they reflect the glory of the one who gives them. God. All these things are just glimpses of His glory. They they have a temporary glory that satisfies temporarily. He, God, has an eternal glory that satisfies eternally. I, as a father, would not allow my daughter Karis to be satisfied with temporary relief from, from pain. I love her too much. And Christ loves Mary, Martha, and Lazarus too much to let them be satisfied with the glory of this life. He loves them. He loves us so much He will give us nothing less than the best. And the best is Himself. In all of His glory. And so, therefore, because of His love, He waits two days until He knows Lazarus isn't sick anymore. He's died. Look at verse 11. Jesus says to His disciples, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. I'm still in control. You see that? I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he meant taking a rest and sleep, and they're scared out of their minds. This takes them back to within two miles of Jerusalem, and they think they'll all die if they go there. Thomas especially highlights that in verse 16. Well, if we're going to go, we're all going to go die. Then Jesus told them plainly, verse 14, Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad. The literal word is I rejoice. I rejoice that I was not there so that you may believe. Jesus does not make this any easier the deeper we get into it. I I rejoice that I was not there so that you may believe. Jesus is rejoicing in this present situation Why? Because he means to strengthen the disciples' faith 
through it. These disciples, remember, we talked about this just a minute ago. These disciples are about to see him go to the cross. They need to know that, that when it looks like all is chaos, Christ is still actually in control. They need to know, no matter how gory the cross looks, it's truly going to reveal God's glory and his love for them. It's not a loss. It will reveal his love. Christ rejoices in the present situation because he is laying a foundation of truth to strengthen the disciples' faith so that it won't suffocate under the suffering of the cross. This is implications for us. He's laying a foundation not just for them, he's laying a foundation for you, for your faith, for my faith. And we may know that when all looks like chaos, He is sovereignly working and in control. No matter how gory life gets, He is at work for His glory. And He is not going to lose in your life. He is going to prove His love. He loves us and He is loving us even in the midst of our Suffering, sustaining us, giving us the power we need to stand up under it, giving us more of Himself. It's the most loving thing He can do. He will provide us the power we need in the midst of our suffering all the way through to the end. And there will be an end. There will be an end to our suffering. Christ is going to use this situation with Lazarus to show His glory, show His love, by showing us that sickness and death have an end. They, they don't get to win. They don't get the last word. Jesus says, Lazarus might have fallen asleep, but I am going there to wake him up. I'm in control. They don't get the last word. I do. Let's read verses 17 to 20. Now when Jesus came he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Significant. It's the time when the body begins to decay. All hope is gone at this point. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. So Martha gets word that Jesus is on his way into town, and she doesn't wait for him to get there. She goes out to meet him. What will she say? She's sent for him. What would we say? What do we say when we cry out to Christ for help and he doesn't come? She speaks in verse 21. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. We get her. Don't we like, we get where she's coming from. Are her words not our words? In the midst of suffering, Lord, if, if you'd been here, if you'd acted, you could have stopped this. Her emotions just bubble over and, 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 and spill out with words that we all know well. If only, if only, if only. But that's not all she says. Look at it again. Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus is going to ask for something from God in verse 42. 
It's not to raise Lazarus. He's going to ask that through that people will see and believe. The most loving thing he can do is show them himself in all his glory. This is not about Lazarus. It's about Christ. If all you see in this text is a guarantee from Christ to one day bring your suffering to an end, and that is the greatest gift that He can give you, you're missing the point of the text. The point is that even now, in the midst of our suffering, He gives us Himself. And He will bring it all to an end and fully give us Himself forever. Martha's words right here. So poignant. So powerful. Even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. She's saying even now, in the midst of my hurt and my pain and my confusion, even now when I wish that you'd acted differently, even now, I trust you. My confidence is in you. My faith is in you. Even now. Can we say this with Martha? Can you say it with her? Even now. When we find ourselves in the midst of darkness, suffering, pain, hurt, confusion, can we speak these words of faith even now? I'll be be honest with you, like in my own life, all too often I've found myself choking on these words, unable to say them. Remember, as a 17-year-old sitting in the ER hearing that my friend had just died in a car accident on impact, and, and right then, could I say, even now, I trust you, confidence in you, love you, believe you're working for your glory and my good, and that you love me. In my early days of youth ministry, I remember sitting with a young lady at 3 a.m. at the hospital holding her hand as she vomited up pills that she'd taken to try to bring her own life to an end. And right then, could I say, even now. Remember the feeling of a young man's chest heaving against mine as I held him and I told him that his father had just died tragically, instantly. Remember standing beside a bed with a wife as she weeps as her husband loses his fight with cancer. Remember being in waiting rooms with friends whose children have just died. Can can we say right then, even now, I'm not, I'm not, hear me please, I'm not asking if we can pretend like suffering doesn't suck. Does. I'm, not, I'm not asking if we can pretend like, like it doesn't hurt or it doesn't cause question. M- Martha pours out her heart in confusion. Lord, if you've been here. And Jesus doesn't rebuke her and he doesn't rebuke you. You can pour out your heart before the Lord. Your confusion, your questions, your wrestling. And even right there, it's right there in the midst of our confusion, in the midst of our questions that he wants us to know. Even though it looks like chaos, I'm still in control. I'm working for my glory and I love you. Even now, will you trust me? This is what he says to Martha, no matter the chaos you think you see, I'm still in control. He says it in verse 23. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. I don't care what it looks like. 
don't care that it's been four days and everyone tells you this is final. I'm in control. Martha thinks she knows what Jesus is talking about. She's a little bit off the mark. In verse 24, Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection of the dead on the last day. The Jews believed in a final day of judgment when all the dead would be brought to life and judged. We as Christians believe this too. Jesus has already spoken to us about this back in John chapter 5. And in John chapter 5, he said that it's his voice. His voice will one day call all the dead out of their tombs on the last day. Death doesn't get the final word. He does. And this is what he wants Martha to know. That this power isn't some power that belongs to a last day. It's a power that belongs to him. Verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Martha, I am the one who will raise everyone on the last day. That's me. And I'm right here, right now. I am the resurrection. Right here, right now. I am the life. And, and he explains what that means. He has a parallel statement right here. He says, I am the resurrection. There's a parallel statement that follows it. So whoever believes in me, though he die yet shall he live. In other words, what it means that Christ is the resurrection is that everyone who believes in him, even if they experience physical death, it doesn't get the final word. It's not, it's not the end. There will be a resurrection. I am the resurrection. He also says, I am the life. And he goes on to explain what that means in a parallel statement in verse 26. I'm the life. So everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. In other words, everyone to whom my Holy Spirit has given life, like I talked about back in John chapter 3, with this new birth, this rebirth by the Holy Spirit, everyone to whom my Holy Spirit gives new life, they believe in me. All whom the Father gives me will come to me. They believe in me, they come to me, and that's spiritual life, and it's eternal. It never ends. Even if physical death comes, that life that I've given them, spiritual, true life, it never ends. And even that physical death is only temporary. It itself will be reversed because I am not just the life. I am the resurrection. And he looks at Martha and he looks at us and Jesus asks, do you believe this? Not just in some last day, do you believe in me and my power and I am the resurrection and the life? Do you believe this? Martha, right now in the midst of your confusion and your questions, right now, when you're staring death itself in the face and your life is at its darkest point, even now, do you believe that I am the resurrection and the life that I am with you and I am for you? I think that's a great summary of what Christ is saying right here. I'm with you and I am for you. See these two truths. These are the next two truths about our Savior who is with us in the midst of suffering. Truth number three, in our suffering, our Savior is with us. Not alone. He's, he's with us, Martha. I'm not just talking about something that's going to happen on the last day. I'm talking about me here right now. I'm with you. Jesus is with her in the midst of her hurt. But that's not all. He's not just with her. Truth number four, in our suffering, our Savior is for us. He's not just with us. He is for us. In other words, 
Jesus doesn't just show up and give Martha like a, a shoulder to, to cry on. I'm with you. This is all that I can offer you. This is all we can offer to one another. And then Mr. I'm with you. Jesus is bringing more than that. He's bringing hope. I am the resurrection and the life for those who believe in me. Pain, death, suffering, it doesn't get the last word. It's not the end of their story. Do you believe this, Martha? Do we believe this? I'm here. I'm, I'm for you. I pray that we all respond with the same words as Martha in verse 27. Look at it. She says, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ. Son of God who's coming into the world. Martha herself doesn't fully understand what she's saying right here, but she's on the right path. She trusts. Even now, she trusts. Do we? Like when life is at its darkest and you're staring death in the face, do you believe that Jesus is with you? Do you believe that Jesus is for you? I believe that God wants you to know and feel this reality so much so that this narrative repeats these truths to us. It repeats them, but in doing so, it deepens them and it widens them. It aims for us to feel them. Look at verse 28. The story shifts from Martha to her sister Mary. Martha went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher's here and he's calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. And when the Jews who were in the house consoling her saw Mary rise and go quickly out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. We've heard that. She says the same thing as her sister. You've got to imagine that this has probably been an ongoing conversation between the two of them over the past four days. If Jesus had been here. And just like with Martha, Jesus wants Mary to know He's with her and for her in the midst of her suffering. But he's not going to say it this time. He's going to show it. Look at verse 33. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Jesus sees the suffering, hurt, the tears. Verse 33 says that he was deeply moved in his spirit and troubled. I don't think that's a great translation that gives us the full picture of what's going on here, of what Jesus is, is feeling. The Greek word for deeply moved actually conveys a sense of anger. It was a word that was often used to describe the snorting of horses. Like if, if you imagine an irritated horse that snorts and, and stamps its hoof, that's, that's a better 
picture. Jesus is not just moved. He's angry. He's troubled. That that word literally means to, to stir up. It was often used to describe what a storm would do to a still body of water. It would stir it up. It would trouble the The waters, you can see Jesus is not just getting emotional here. There's something deep within his his spirit that's being stirred up. A storm is brewing. There's something troubling him that's making him angry. What's happening here? I think that just like Jesus used his words to tell Martha that he is with her, he's using his actions here with Mary to make that reality deeper, richer, fuller because right here we see truth number truth number three in our suffering our savior is not just with us he weeps with us expanding on the truth that we've already seen truth number three he's not just with us he weeps with us tears fall from his face this is you're probably aware that the shortest verse in all of Scripture, that's not just true in English, it's true in Greek as well, and contains two of the most precious words in both languages. Jesus wept. We don't have a high priest who's unable to identify with us. He, he wept, but the beauty of his tears doesn't stop in just the fact that he shed them. Because in our suffering, Jesus doesn't just weep with us. No, we've got to expand the other truth too. Jesus, in our suffering, weeps for us. He weeps with us and he weeps for us. It is when Jesus sees Mary weeping. It's when he sees the people weeping that anger is stirred up. Not at the people, but for the people. He he sees the hurt. He sees the pain brought about by sin and brokenness and death. And like a horse that snorts and stamps before it charges, Jesus says, point me in the direction of Lazarus' tomb. Point me in the direction of death because I'm here to charge it and do something about it. Jesus, he doesn't just weep with us. I mean, that's beautiful, but if that's all he can do is weep with us, that ultimately leaves us hopeless. If all he can do is weep with us, he can't say, I am the resurrection and the life. And we cannot say, even now we trust you. But he doesn't just weep with us. He weeps for us, for the condition brought about by sin, for the death that plagues our world. And he has come to be with us and for us to do something about sin and death. And he did it primarily, specifically through the cross came to do something about sin and death, and he did. On the cross, Christ took on our sin. He took on the death that it deserved, and he wrestled our sin and death down to the grave, buried it there, and walked out three days later, leaving it behind. Walked out of the tomb victorious. Jesus didn't come just to be with us. He came to be for us. And the cross, this is our guarantee. That no matter how much it looks like chaos is winning, never did it look more like chaos was winning than at the cross. Christ was in full control. No one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. And if I lay it down, if I have the authority to do that, I have the authority to take it back up again. This charge I received from my Father. It's our plan. We're in control. This looks like chaos, but I'm in control. This is our guarantee. No matter how much it looks like chaos is winning, he's in control. This is our guarantee that no matter how gory things look, he's working for his glory. This is our guarantee that he is not losing. 
But He's working His love for us. All of that was true at the cross. So it has to be true. It must be true even in our own places of, of loss. Jesus is with us and He is for us at the cross and everywhere. See the truth of that. Verse 38, Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave. And a stone lay against it. We're going to hear about another one of those a little bit later on. A little bit of foreshadowing maybe. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he's been dead for four days. Martha says, on behalf of everybody's nose, let's keep the tomb closed. I love the King James Version right here. In the good old King Jimmy Version, she says, Lord, he stinketh. <laughs> Sometimes you just can't talk, King Jimmy. After four days, body's decomposing by now, there's no hope. Jesus says otherwise, verse 40. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Martha, you're not about to smell something gory. You are about to see glory. You're about to see that I am the resurrection and the life. Right here, right now. You didn't got to wait till the last day. You're going to see I'm the resurrection and the life. Death doesn't get the final word. Pain doesn't get the final word. Suffering doesn't get the final word. I do. I'm with you and I'm for you. I love you and I'm giving you myself in all my glory. That's what he prays for in verses 41 and 42. And through what he's about to do, people will see, behold his glory, and believe they'll get him. And in verse 43, when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus! It's a good thing he specified. Just saying. Come out! The man who had died came preached this text in Haiti, and when I read that, at no other point in the sermon, but when I read that, all the Haitians clapped. They went crazy. They're on to something. The dead, the man who had died, came out. His hands and feet bound with linen strips, his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Death, let him go. Sin, let him go. Hell, let him go. Satan, let him go. My word has spoken and it is the final word. None of those things have power here. They don't get the last word. I do. And it's a good word. Let him go. He says, I'm in, I'm in control. I'm sovereign over all of this. I'm sovereign here right now. I'm sovereign over this suffering. From the very beginning of this text, Jesus has not just been the Savior who is with us 
in our suffering, being with us, being for us, lifting our eyes from a limited perspective to have faith in his eternal perspective. No, he's not just been that. From the beginning, he has also claimed to be the Savior over our suffering. I want us to step back and very quickly see the reality of that. Four truths about our Savior who is sovereign over our suffering. Number one, over our suffering, our Savior is perfectly sovereign. We've seen that from the beginning. He's in control. He declared that to us all throughout this passage. And and if we're honest, this is the truth of Scripture that makes us struggle with suffering. This is what makes us wrestle with this. The fact that Christ claims to be in control because we, we just honestly asked, Jesus, if you're in control, if you could have prevented the suffering of my life, why didn't you? Mary and Martha felt this. Lord, if you'd been here, a brother wouldn't have died. Knowing that Christ is sovereign is the truth that causes us to ask questions, but it is also the truth that gives us comfort. Because if Christ is not sovereign, it may reduce our questions. Jesus, why didn't you do anything about this? Well, he can't. He's not sovereign. It may reduce our questions, but it kills our comfort. It's the fact that he is sovereign that ultimately gives us a comforting hope because it means he has the power to do truth number two. Over our suffering, our Savior pronounces the final word. He's not sovereign. He doesn't get to do that. Over our suffering, our Savior pronounces the final word. This reality has been put explicitly on display. This is is part of the glory Jesus wants us to see about himself in John 11. The death did not have the final word for Lazarus. Pain and suffering didn't have the final word for Mary and Martha. And death and pain and suffering do not get the final word in any of our lives. Cancer does not get the final word in your life. Car accident does not get the final word. Depression does not get the final word. Infertility does not get the final word. Miscarriage does not get the final word. Death itself, our own death, does not get the final word. For Horatio Spafford, who started out talking about, for him who lost four daughters to the to the sea. A shipwreck doesn't get the final word. Why? Because Christ is sovereign. So he alone gets the final word. And it's a good word, a word of promise that we see in truth number three. Over our suffering, our Savior promises an end. He wins. Over our suffering, our Savior promises an end. He wins. Just like the promise we saw in this text concerning Lazarus. Jesus, near the very beginning, made this promise. He has fallen asleep, but I go to wake him up. I go to bring an end to his death. I go to win. That promise is for all of us. I know it because of verse 25, where Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, that's anyone. Anyone who believes. He who believes in me will live Even though he dies, I will wake him up. Like, all the ways in which you and and, and I suffer or experience pain or hurt and death, Christ has promised that a day is coming when he will reverse all of that. I love the way C.S. Lewis says, it's everything bad is coming untrue. He's going to, even if we die, if we fall asleep in him, Scripture uses that terminology because we all know that sleep is something you wake from. 
It's temporary. And that's the image he wants you to have of death. It's temporary. He will wake you from it. The day is coming when he will wake us up, right all wrongs, make all things new. That's the promise of Revelation 21, verses 4 and 5. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away, and he who is seated on the throne, that's Jesus, says, Behold, I am making all things new new because christ is perfectly sovereign he gets to pronounce the final word over suffering and death and it is a promise that it will end and he will win these are the truths that prepare us to suffer when when we're pushed into the ice cold water of of suffering these truths point us up for air so that our faith doesn't suffocate but it's sustained and more than sustained it's able to sing this is the fourth and final truth over our suffering we can praise our savior even now praise him sing to him over our suffering we can praise our Savior even now, even in the midst of suffering, staring death in the face. We can stand with Martha and declare, even now, even when I don't understand, even when I'm confused, even when I've got questions, even now we still trust Jesus. I know my perspective is limited, and even now, when I cannot possibly see how this thing, how this suffering in my life could be for God's glory, even now, when I cannot possibly see how God could be loving me through it, even now, I cling to the cross, the place of greatest suffering, the place of greatest glory, the, pra- the place of greatest love, and I believe that if God can work his glory and his love there, he can do it anywhere he will love me by giving me himself in all of his glory and he is all i need to be sustained in suffering and to sing my way through it and through my suffering i sing to the savior who's with me in it and sovereign over it horatio spafford did this because he he clung to the these truths through the cross So that his faith did not suffocate under the waters of suffering. He sang as he sailed over them. After Horatio Spafford received word from his wife and daughter, from his wife, that his daughters had all perished in a shipwreck, Horatio immediately got on a boat, set sail to go to to England to be with his wife, Anna. And as Horatio, as as his boat passed over the portion of the Atlantic where his daughter's ship went down, his heart began to sing in his suffering and over his suffering. And he began to write down the song of his heart. And these were his words. When peace like a river Tendeth my way. Or when sorrows like sea billows roll. Whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my 
So he was honest about his suffering. He goes on to write, though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and hath shed his own blood for my soul. It's the cross that anchored him in the goodness of God and the loveness of God. You see it more clearly in verse 3. My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole. It is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Oh my soul. He was rooted in the cross, knowing the goodness of God, the sovereignty of God, the love of God. And so he goes on to say, for me be it Christ. Be it Christ hence to live. If Jordan above me shall roll, no pain shall be mine. For in death as in life, thou wilt whisper thy peace to my soul. You will give me more of yourself. You'll whisper peace to my soul. You'll sustain me in this so that I can sing in it and sing over it and he ends with a final prayer Lord haste the day haste the day when my face shall be sight the clouds be rolled back as a scroll the trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend even so even now even though that day's not here when you set all things right, you make all things new, you raise all five of my children to live forever with you, even so, even now, even though that day is not here, it is well, it is well with my soul. Let's pray.